You are listening to a discussion born in the Christian ghetto. It's a pleasure to have you along listening to us today here in the Christian ghetto. I am Kryptos, and I'm joined by Duncan Rayburn and um, Johan. And um, we are going to be talking today about um, postmodernism, but specifically in part in this idea that, um, you know, we can either return to something of the past or whatever, and, and the recognition that really the only way out is through and that you don't need to be afraid of postmodernism and critical theory is your friend, actually. Um, um, so, Johan Duncan, welcome. And I'm just going to begin quickly. We'll turn it over after the hellos to Duncan and he can get this ball rolling. Hello, everyone. It's really great to to be here to get get some kind of conversation going. I wanted to open with with such an interesting parable it's one of kierkegaard's most famous parables and he says it happened that a fire broke out backstage in a theater the clown came out to inform the public they thought it was just a jest and they applauded he repeated his warning and they shouted even louder so i think the world will come to an end amid general applause from all the wits who believe that it is a joke. What I really like about this, obviously it's a parable, so there's there's all kinds of ways to interpret and, and read it, which is a key uh, point about what we're going to be discussing. But what is so great is you've got essentially this sort of equivocal figure, the, the clown who shows up, and he's supposed to have only a role, but what he does is he shows up in his human form which is behind the mask, and he announces to the audience, there's really big trouble here. If you don't get out of the theater, you're gonna, we're all doomed, basically. And the audience has a particular model in their heads. The model in their head says, this is what reality is like. That is just a clown, and the clown is, is not something that has to be interpreted. It is obviously just a clown. And because of the model that they have in their heads, they cannot actually encounter what is real. They're, they're stuck in a particular frame that they can't get out of. And so I think the story, I mean, for me, it, it's a really powerful reminder of the, the importance of recognizing that most of what we find as obvious is, in fact, in some sense, conditioned, something that we've actually come to view in, an, in a particular light because of various conditions and various, you know, thought processes that we have, various influences, the world we live in, all of that stuff. And sometimes that conditioning is wrong. Um, and so this brings me to the, the kind of core issue of, of what I think is going on in the postmodern. And we've all been looking at this from various point, points of view, but the postmodern is itself an equivocal thing. It's not, it's not easy to, to grapple with, and defining it is nearly impossible because there are different kinds of variations on a theme. And, and yet we know that one of the, the core things postmodernity is trying to do is it's trying to undo or at least, I mean, that, that's the, the popular leftist word dismantle the modern 
It's trying to challenge and question and open up the modern, which has gotten stuck in a particular frame. So essentially, the modern is the, you could say, in Kierkegaard's parable, the modern is the audience. The audience is stuck in this very fixed frame, and the clown is trying to break it, but but fails, essentially. Um, but is a reminder that in some way we have to do that. We have to b- break the frame so that we encounter what is really happening. Um, there is a lot of doom and gloom in the story, but that I think is a pretty good place to start for just looking at what is postmodernity trying to do in general. This is very, it's a very vague word, a very vague term, um, a, a set of events, I guess, in, in some way. But what is it actually trying to do? Um, and what can we find helpful in it? One thing that um, I think just to just to help frame our discussion so that it takes place in in as full an expression as possible that I think is really interesting about that parable is the obvious reaction is well the clown you know he's wearing a mask he's in a particular role that is the heart of the parable the parable but if you actually zoom out what you see is that in fact the audience is playing a particular role and the theater is a particular location and uh, the the framing of the activity between audience and performer is a particular ritual uh, in and of itself and so the question uh, that this parable unlocks for us in our sort of present moment how do we transcend this framing this confine this matrix that we find ourselves in is not just one of identifying bad actors or actors wearing masks or people being deceptive or people being misinterpreted. It's actually a much deeper question of the entire framing we have of where we are, what environment we're in, what the role of our polity is. Um, and, and these very fundamental assumptions need to be challenged in order for us to, to, to correctly navigate the space. That's a really, a really powerful yeah, way of, of framing it because one of the problems is that we we are locked into only what we are conscious of. And so we're conscious of, oh, we're going to the theater. What we're not conscious of necessarily is why we are going, uh, what has shaped our consciousness to make that particular kind of reality. um, (laughs) Kryptos, your sound is on. Now it's off. I meant to moot, and my daughter came in to ask whether she could take um, frozen meat pies in her lunch for for things. So we're just going to leave that in there and break the frame for a bit. That's um, brilliant. The, the yeah, because we're we're here. It's like for you guys, it's the middle of the afternoon, and here it's like it's still dark outside, right? Um, so, but um, what what remind me, especially when you're talking there, like, and and there. There is a thing that I, my, my wife and kids are tired of me saying when you're looking at movies and other stories is that there are no new stories, that you have a handful of collection of archetypes that there are, are mixed and recycled. And, re- and that's one of the beautiful things about storytelling. And this is you know, part of why when I was um, being taught to do preaching, you know, things they said, especially in the um, church calendar year, they said, don't try to do things new. People just want to hear the old stories again, right? And so there is something to that. So when you were talking about the story of the clown, and I was just thinking like, oh, wait a minute, that's just Plato's cave. And that's this, you know, and that, and you realize like, it's just a very, Kierkegaard just had a variation of Plato's cave. And so that's, that's the, the, you know, and this is really, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, 
when you study philosophy, that's basically the first story, you know, your philosophy 101, and they hand you a copy of the Phaedo, and then you read the, the, the story of the cave. And that's your introduction to philosophy. And yet here we are, you know, uh, having studied advanced degrees and everything. And you come back to the basic story again of you're in a cave, there's a candle, there's shadow behind you, there's shadows on the wall. And you think those shadows on the wall are what are real um, because that's all you've ever known. So like you're saying, you're, on, you're, you're in the theater and your whole reality is defined by the play. And you you sense that everybody on stage is actors. Everything you're seeing is not real. And then when somebody comes in and says, wait a minute, there's something real happening. Um, you are now trapped in the cave with all of the shadows and you have no reference or bearing. Um, because again, the clown just, he looks the part of an actor. And so he's a shadow on the wall. And when the shadow on the wall is telling you that, wait a minute, these are shadows on a wall, you can't grasp what he's saying because that's your only reality is shadow. What do you mean he's shadow? This is just this is just it, right? He's like, no, no, these are not real. These are just shadows on the wall. And and if you don't recognize that these are shadows on the wall, you're going to die. Right. And this 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 then gets to you know various things as you get out into you know broader postmodern theory is is that question of of you know Spengler raises it because he he talks about the incommensurability of culture, right? That he would argue that you you literally cannot break out of your own culture. That um, in order to take something from outside, you have to um, reinterpret it to make it your own. So, in other words, um, for example, the, the example he uses is Christianity, right? That you know the the Western mind couldn't take Christianity as it was, so they couldn't understand it. So they had to make it something that was fundamentally Western. So they had to bring it in and, and so to speak, turn it into theater speak, right? They had to take it into the frame of the theater, turn it or into the cave and make it a, like part of the regular shadow play that they're used to. So that way they could comprehend it according to the world. And so that's this, so that's one frame to look at it. Then the other thing that, that, that popped in my head was this idea, like, and this is where you get at the, the, the modernism, right? Where we talk about universals. And, you know, we talk about, um, say, like laws of physics, which we assume, you know, this is the, the classic laws of physics. And when I say to people like, no, 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 though we talk about those laws of physics, but that's just the Western way of looking at physical interactions. And people look at you like, no, that's just the way. Of, no, I said, no, that's the Western way of looking at physical. There are multiple other cultures that have very developed and refined ways of looking at physical interactions that are completely different than alien years. Now, your particular model is very powerful, has been very successful, and um, it works in ways that other cultures don't work, but it is not the only frame in which to understand the world. And that's kind of, in a sense, postmodern. Postmodernism attacks that, that modernist conceit. Um, you know, like Gautamer himself, like there's, you know, there's no way in a sense to get out of your culture, that you just, you can't become a historical, you can't um, step out of your sits and laven. And then the, you know, I mean, the postmodernists themselves are trapped within the Western because they're basically within the Western frame. Right. And now they're, they're saying, well, it's all just 
power relations, not realizing that their own philosophy is as much a product of that same frame as the thing that they're criticizing, right? So this is this is where you begin to to get to the point of where you know, like Dr. Seuss, it's turtles all the way down, and that's and that you know, and that in sense for me, when you were when you're talking about framing it, that's kind of the sense for me is I think a lot of times we just don't realize how trapped we are and how the degree to which our own discourse is defined by the Western frame that we live in. Even for many of us who are Christians who feel at times that we stand apart from our culture um, are defined by it a lot of times in, in, in a lot of ways that we're far, far, um, that, or that, that we're not really, far more than we think we are in ways that are not really apparent to us. Do you think it, it might be worth at this point just giving a sort of prelude? I don't want to skip to the end of the discussion, hmm. but just noting why this discussion is important to take place and what successfully taking on headfirst this subject allows us to do going forwards into the future. Well, maybe you could take a stab at it, Duncan, because I think each of us has our own thoughts on that. Um, that might be good to maybe for you just take a stab at that, why this is important. One of the things that I notice about the dissident right in general is that it is very tempted to get locked into a mimetic battle with the left. So in, in a sense, it is trapped in the space of, of power struggle, basically. It's, so it's, it's looking at the world through the lens of will and control and which which these these are just aspects of modernity itself it's also looking at at sort of what's next which is which is part of the liberal narrative of progress and and so one of my big concerns is how to get outside of that mimetic battle and the only so from gerard's point of view you don't get outside of imitation your your um engagement with the world is always bound up in in mimesis, which is more complicated than imitation, it's it's uh, mediation. You're always bound up in a sort of mediation, and part of what I think the end game should be. So, though you know, Kryptos, you've mentioned this idea of of the only way out is is through. Is what will out? What does out look like? Out means, in my view, getting out of the mimetic battle with the left and formulating something that is definitively itself. <laughs> I also maintain, uh, and, and this is part of why we're part of this little ghetto, is, is that the only real escape is, is through transcendence, genuine. And there are different kinds of transcendence, but the ultimate transcendence is, is union with God. So the Christian frame ultimately, and there is, and Kryptos, you've talked about this, there are ways that Christians are locked into the modern frame very much um, to the point that when you <laughs> critique Christians for being locked into that, for instance, that very systematic way of thinking, they respond as if you're attacking Christianity itself, which I know you're not doing. Uh, but it is a vital thing to try and figure out, okay, how can we find our way through which, with a holistic, rich, deep political vision, which is going to be more organic, less abstract and universal, um, that is not determined by coordinates set by the left in a power struggle. That's how I see it. I don't know if if you guys have have any other ideas to add to that. Maybe Johan can jump in then, and maybe I'll I'll um, I'll throw my thoughts in third then. 
You know, I, I think, Duncan, you're absolutely right. The only thing I'd add is one trap that I think a lot of people in our sphere with all the right instincts, especially very healthy, vital young men, is they look for other examples of healthy, vital men. And the, the place they find them is in the past. And so then they, they inhabit this very return, um, past-oriented vision of what we should be and where we should go. And on one level, that makes complete sense and uh, a sort of rich dialogue and understanding of and inhabiting of history is incredibly important. But if you don't note our present moment, you don't note what the most powerful dialogues and in framing of our moment are, and you refuse to engage them, it's very difficult for anyone else to genuinely, truly and unselfconsciously adopt what you're trying to sell because it, in their heart of hearts they know that the postmodern criticism is a powerful one and it's ridiculous to pretend you're a crusader you're not a crusader um you know we have to take stock of where we are and we have to postmodernity is something that that and i think we've all tried to do this in our own way recently is something that absolutely can be passed through you don't need to shy away from it you don't need to sort of seed the battleground and say wouldn't it be nice if we returned to something before it's something that can be taken head on it has to be confronted on its own terms its own internal contradictions have to be exposed and the incredibly fertile interesting and diverse battle uh, um, sort of fields that lie beyond it can be can be conquered from that point but without doing that you risk descending into larping which is insisting on a vision of the past that i think everyone knows cannot be rematerialized in in full and therefore although uh, on a surface level it's it's seductive it's powerful in a realistic level that never actually instantiates in anyone actually adopting that as a way of life because it's impossible and so i think that's a dead end and we have to be future facing even if we are instinctually reactionary um, and and a head-on confrontation with postmodernism is inevitable and indeed necessary. Yeah, agreed. The 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 thing that that I you know it, it kind of, Bachmal Havel was was good in reading. I forget which of his books is in, in talking about becoming you know in in dealing with the communist regime. Right, he says there's that temptation to be anti-communist. And as you're saying, Duncan, that if you become anti-communist, you are being defined by communism. So in that in that mimetic interplay, you you become your enemy, and you see this throughout in various historical, you know, in various historical, you know, um, and people don't like to hear this in the West, but in order to to win World War II, we had to become Germany. In order to win the Cold War, we had to become Russia, and people bristle at that, right? And and um, there, you know, there, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and th there's, so, so his, his dictum was to just simply the best you're able to do the right thing and then allow results to fall where they may, right? So if you bring down communism or you bring down the regime, that's great. But if you don't, at least you have the consolation that you've done the right thing. And so there is something in that. Now, in terms of this, this notion of, of frames and framing and why postmodernism is so powerful is because of the nature of the way that modernists, modernity, like enlightenment modernism um, framed the debate as the pursuit of truth. 
that we're going to clear away all of the superstitions and we're going to place knowledge on a sure foundation. There has been, you know, 400 years now plus of, if, if it's falling into the realm of science and rationality, it is sure knowledge. And anything outside of this is, is suspect, you know, it's superstition and so forth. Um, and so you, you swim up upstream against that. And, and it's very hard for people to see the, the ways in which the, um, the Christian faith in particular, I mean, we all look at the, the, our broader society and see how, you know, it's defined by rationalism. You know, you have scientism, managerialism, the, the rise of the market, the machine mentality, all of these things, right? But, you know, I, like I pointed out on Twitter the other day that um, systematic theology is just the managerial mindset applied to Christian teaching. And people went absolutely nuts, like just nuts. And, you know, as, as Josh said in the group chat, he says, you should have known better, right? That, that you know, the kind of autistic um, hate that this would generate, right? And I'm like, you know, I probably should have known better, Josh, but... Um, so there, there, there are these types of things too. And then like even in the power of technique for growing churches. So you have like the church growth movement. So you take something as, as core to the Christian experience as such as like, you know, missions and spreading the gospel and making converts and you turn it into a technical exercise, right? In terms of, you know, the, the mega church and the church growth. So with there, these, and these are just a couple of low hanging fruit in regards to, to our own self then, right? So there comes up this question and this is what, enlightened me so much when, with reading Gautamer is that once you realize that method cannot guarantee you access to the truth, that the whole modernist en enterprise just simply falls apart. And then Gautamer says, though, and this is the thing that made, that annoys him from the postmodernism, he says that um, that there is intentionality in meaning being is a thing and there's intentionality in the world out there that's trying to reveal itself to you and so you have best to understand it but you can't do so with um with method and then so then that really then you know as far as i'm concerned what happens is you clear away all of the the deadwood now and and you throw everybody onto to a level playing field right um, but now you're still always trapped in your own sits and laban, right? Your own situation in life. Um, and, you know, like Paul Ricoeur says, you're in a spot where you can't understand yourself because you can't know yourself because you remain hidden to yourself in your subconscious. So you require somebody else to reveal you to yourself. So this is the kind of the, the situation. So this is what postmodernism gets you into is, is that you know, in order to properly understand yourself, in a sense, there's no rules, there's no guarantee of truth, you can't know yourself, um, you require somebody else to teach you. So you need a frame outside of yourself in order to teach you about yourself. And so the level of the degree to which you're trapped, um, you, you just, you have no idea how trapped you are and how much you need the frame you're in, and yet how much the frame that you're in is blinding you to the truth that you're trying to seek. And that's just kind of since the postmodern problem right there. The hermeneutical problem, as they say. Um, well, um, the, the, yeah, sorry, Ihan. 
Okay, I'll go quickly because I've just got a minor point. Um, just building on on Kraptos, what you said and, and why I think this is particularly pertinent for the right. You know, I believe there is an absolute truth. I think most religious people do. I'm also very skeptical that we should have an arrogant posture with regards to our ability to discern that truth. Now, the problem is once you start becoming overconfident in your ability to do so, if you believe you have unbridled or very strong contact with the truth, then from there, and this is really in the enlightenment paradigm that you were referencing, Kraptos, you could begin to build these universal theories that apply to all people everywhere in the world all at once. Uh, you know, capitalism is the best economic system for X, Y, and Z reasons. Physics is the way, in the way that we conceive it, is applicable to all cultures and all modes. It's a totalizing theory that is the only theory you ever need to, to understand physical interactions. These kind of ideas become totalizing, they become universalizing, they become global. Now, if you accept that frame, you accept that there is one primary and correct way of seeing the world because you have such strong access to truth that it supersedes all of these different perspectives trying to approach truth from their own angle. Their sits in Laban, as you said. Um, at that point, you've given up this notion. You've, you've conceded that if someone from a totally different place in the world that has no connection to you, your history, your place, your beliefs, your, you know, your faith, your way of life, your traditions whatsoever, if they adopt the correct universal way of being in the world, the right set of beliefs, then they are just as part of uh, the polity that has access to the truth as you are. And then therefore there is no problem with, you know, mixing them together, transporting people around, undermining the boundaries between those two spaces, because ultimately you're all, you're all part of the same totalizing framework for accessing the truth. You know, the right way to act, you know, the right things to believe there should, there should be no barriers to your increasing um, homogeneity, given that, that newfound access. Obviously, I think that's something that we reject, this notion that all boundaries, all borders, all systems um, can be uh, aggregated into a single universal homogenous whole. And I think that it is necessary, uh, part of the philosophical framework, to undermine that position, to recognize uh, this difficulty in accessing a universal theory, a universal truth. That's a very... Uh, that's a very helpful helpful way to to look at things. I think the 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 major the major th thing for me is is how modernity does abstract reality and then take the abstraction and impose it on the real, and that's precisely what postmodernity postmodernity tries to undo, but without, let's say, solid values. So it's not doing that from a perspective of recognizing, for instance. That power itself is not a univocal thing. It's not a simple. Uh, it's not a simple thing of enforcement, which even Foucault tends to to adopt a very univocal view of power. Um, th that's something I've written about this. The the fact that actually, in some sense, hermeneutical understanding, a rich, deep understanding, is is more powerful in the long term, even though it may not be effective in the way that that more a more forceful version of power is but um it helps to remember that we're thrown into this world that that sort of heideggerian idea that we're, we're thrown into being and that being itself speaks to us in different ways so truth is it can be univocal it can be this very uh simple 
instantaneous meaning. It can be equivocal, which is where the, the postmodernists tend to get stuck. The equivocal is the sense of, of everything sort of splitting up and moving so far apart that you can't really know what is true. And so that tends towards nihilism. Nietzsche is in, an, in a pretty significant way an equivocal philosopher. Then you have the dialectical view of truth, where truth reveals itself to you as, as something that you can recover some sense of unity, the univocal, but you have to pass through the equivocal. And this, uh, this last sort of way that truth reveals it, itself to us, which for me is, is really helpful from the philosopher William Desmond, is the truth is metaxological. It is something we encounter in the between. So that's something that where you can sort of grasp some abstract version of it, but it is always from within the story. You're sort of stuck there. And, and I think one one th sort of point which may be helpful in for anyone to, to navigate this is to realize that modernity regards truth as a largely epistemological concern. So it's something uh, that is abstracted necessarily. Truth is what you know. And this is why um, it, it fixates in a way, idolizes objective reality. Whereas the pre-modern, the Christian way is, is the, the arch example of this. The pre-modern regards truth as ontological. It is in being itself. And so there's nothing that our, our sort of thoughts can do to control it and to submit. Uh, submitted to ourselves against the modern paradigm. And this is actually something that modernity shows. The more we try to control things, the more they show up and wreck all of our ideas. Um, the more we try and create bureaucratic structures, even now to, to make everything neat and subservient to us, the more the chaos is in fact proliferated. And so that's, that's kind of, um, helpful because I think whatever political vision we have, it needs to be aware of the immersion of people in their world. And that's a very local thing. All of us come from different um, parts of the world and we're looking at things very much from our, our own point of view with a shared vision, but, but which will in some ultimate sense need to be applied where we are. And that's, that's where it gets really tricky. Well, it, it's interesting that you use that that notion of of what's in between because that's that's something that I try to you know exculpate to people all the time this, this notion of of wisdom and although if you get back into like biblical studies or whatever too the the words are are much more um, overlapping than they would be today but I tend to draw a distinction in good modernist fashion um, between knowledge and wisdom right. So we, we generally tend to, in the modern world, go with this idea that knowledge is power. So knowledge is something that enables me to manipulate and harness the world in such a way that I can gain mastery over it. Um, toward, and, and this mastery allows me to un, unleash its power, to control it, to harness it, um, largely in the West for the purpose of making money, right? So that's, that's one of the things. But so knowledge gives me power. It allows me to make and control things. Um, but but wisdom, on the other hand, you don't 
possess anything. And so I, again, I, I draw back to um, something that I come back to constantly is this pair of verses in Proverbs 26, where on back-to-back verses in four and five, he's, you know, the, the author says, you know, correct a fool or do not correct a fool or you'll get trapped in his folly. And then the very next verse says, correct the fool or he will forever remain in his folly. And in a Western thing, you know, our, you know, self-help book type of, of, of understanding of the world, we want, you know, seven steps for perfect fool encounters, right? Um, and, and that's kind of sort of our approach to it, right? Um, we want a best practices for, for fool encounters. And what the, the, the ancients knew is that, and this is why these verses get paired together, it, it, it struck me for a long time as challenging because I, you know, why are these, especially with this sort of God's guidebook, God's rules for living, you have this, you know, when you're younger, you have this sort of modernist idea of truth and everything. And like, why would you have two opposite pieces of advice back to back? And you realize, well, the, the truth is actually in between, in the space in between, right? And so what wisdom is telling you is that, and, and once you understand this, there's a, a whole range of stories in the scriptures that open up to you that, that this is really what's happening, is that you encounter God. So the fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of wisdom. So you have a relationship with God. And in this relationship, you then see the world correctly through the eyes of God. And then in the moment when you encounter the fool, you will know what to do. So what do you have from a modern perspective? You have nothing. You have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with the world around you. But in the moment, you have the right answer. And that really is the thing that the modern can't abide, is that he won't know the answer until he arrives at the moment of decision. He needs his policy manual to tell him you know, on page 365, subparagraph four, you know, that that he, here's what you do. Here's your seven steps in this situation. And if you follow these seven steps, you'll do it'll be best practices. And you and for the, the vast majority, that works just fine. But you realize that there, there's all of these edge cases or whatever where the, the system breaks down and you need somebody who has wisdom. And, you know, we tie back politically. This is this is exactly what Carl Schmitt was talking about in the exception. He says that, that modernity has no way to deal with the exception and that law in the end becomes a miracle. And what he's trying to talk about with the miracle of law is that particular moment when you meet the situation and somebody must decide. And because you have nothing, you have prior to that, there's nothing that you have prior to that moment. And this is the thing that, that modernity you know, and against all of the things of power, everything falls away once you're in that moment because you have nothing. One, one thing the that decision I, that you're faced with. One thing that I think falls out of that very neatly, which is incredibly pertinent, is that knowledge, the policy manual, as you say, can kind of exist devoid of actions. So one thing that our space really suffers from is this tendency to not do anything and to just go round and round in circles on Twitter. Or about, even worse, Johan, sorry to interrupt, that, or that talking is doing. Right. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. But wisdom is in some way, as you say, it emerges out of the time of decision, the time of action. What is the right path to take with this situation that is standing right in front of me and how do I move forwards into it uh, in a long-sighted and wise and prudent fashion? And um, 
you know, I think a sort of stark example of how limited the policy manual approach to the world can be. I was reading recently about the early Christian martyrs, and they pursued a strategy, if you can even call it that. I think that's completely the wrong word. They pursued a faith that if you laid out their proposition would seem completely insane, which was we will totally submit to persecution. We'll be slaughtered like lambs. Um, we will continue to praise the emperor as he persecutes us. Um, we'll go man, woman, and child uh, into the arena to be executed or burned or fed to animals um, because that is what our Lord has called us to do, to lay down our arms and uh, to be as lambs um, and to honor Caesar, to honor our worldly leaders for they are appointed by God. And in some sense, that is a completely nonsensical strategy. What kind of strategy is that? And yet, on the other hand, it was such a radical display uh, of faith, and it, it engendered such a radical faith in them that the belief could not help but propagate itself. Um, and, and so I think th there's a version of this in our time, which is, uh, and it's, it's slightly pathetic in comparison, but I do think it is, an, it is a, a relevant comparison, which is the question of having children. One thing that I think you can't get away from is that uh, the Christian parts of our sphere, I think almost everyone in our group is a father unless they're very young. Um, and that's it's kind of remarkable in a way. And I don't know about you, but for me, that wasn't like a calculated strategy like, well, we need to, you know, for political reasons, we need to propagate ourselves and multiply in numbers and, and then we'll mm -hmm. take over the world. And often it's treated that way, like is, is uh, you know, is, is having children sufficient to take the future is it necessary is it political or whatever that's i think we approach it from a totally different frame which is like you're called to have children that is the wise and faithful choice you're called not to use contraception that is the wise and faithful choice but appreciate there might be some uh, some differences here between denominations but anyway speaking as a catholic and you just have to take that leap and what falls out of it falls out of it and i suspect that very good things will fall out of it uh and it, it's sort of like emblematic of a healthy culture that is neurotically trying to systematize and then move according to a policy it is just inhabiting the world and attempting to find wisdom at that moment of action there's well life itself is good I mean, this the, this is one of the things. So the the idea of planning a fam family planning that idea is such a fascinating one to me because it it assumes that modernist mindset of we must make sure that everything is is a personal choice, and it's very often the case that people would really love a family and it doesn't you know they can't have children for whatever reason, but the fact that they're open to it. And they go, well, this is this is the the world that I would like to welcome. And then I think that's also part of in, in terms of this call to action. Many of us live, I, I suspect, quite mundane lives. We don't have very exciting adventures all the time. But then I think a major aspect of the dissident right, which I really love, is this is this slightly quirky adventure adventurous spirit which the worst thing we could possibly do is is keep that online is keep it in the realm of abstraction because we're working with modern tech which is already in the realm of abstraction the kind of you know the computer i'm using right now is one that is available across the globe and so suddenly i'm dealing with something that is in some sense apolitical but it the political implication is that it divorces 
us from a sense of being in the world. So the thing that I would say to anyone is, and it's this, this question I've, I often ask myself is, what are you doing in the world that is true to the values that you hold? And often that is, in, in my case, it's, it's from within a very restrictive, largely liberal system, the university system, just poking holes in people's thinking. And very Socratic. It is. And which is very postmodern, which is, I mean, that's the, that's the amazing thing is that I'm using essentially postmodern tools. I said the other day to, to a bunch of colleagues, you know, the problem with, with the, the decolonial movement is it hasn't gone far enough here in Africa, at least. Um, we, we've adopted modernity as if it's true. We've adopted liberalism as if it's true. And everyone was nodding their heads very enthusiastically because I used decolonization to mean the very opposite <laughs> of what they would have assumed it should mean. But you can actually make small, and I've seen it in my own context, you can make small changes around you to edge people in the right direction and to build relationships because that's ultimately what politics is. Well, yeah, and, and it's interesting that you use that, that notion of, re of reversal as well too. Because um, that's often, like from a preaching perspective, that's what you do in many ways is you, you lead people along a path where you get them agree, they're nodding and they're nodding and nodding. And then at a certain point in time, you just pull the rug out from underneath it. Right. And then because you've agreed with these four things, right, um, let's talk about thing number five. And then they're like, now like, oh, you know, um, and then you've got the hook in and now they're thinking about it. Um, I, it coming back to like Johan's thing, though, too, there there was when you're talking about the, these moments of decision and it all of a sudden occurred to me for the first time here, you know, that um this sort of proverbs, do you correct a fool or don't correct a fool? That, you know, when you go back to the the the, the, the tradition of the arena and, and, you know, offering yourself up to sacrifice, in a sense, honoring the authorities in the name of Christ and letting them take you to the arena for slaughter, right? And all of a sudden I realized that, that wait a minute, there's a choice there. Because if, if you look back and you go in scripture, um, you can make a cogent case, a rational case for both the a necessity of violence, but also then the 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 necessity for nonviolence, and the two of them stand. and 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 this is one of the things that Alul notes within the tradition of, of Christian teaching that you can make completely justified, totally cogent, and totally acceptable arguments for both violence and nonviolence. Right. So now you have the fool and the non-fool. And so really, ultimately, in the end, you really don't know whether or not the decision is to, to allow yourself to die in the arena or to take up arms and fight doesn't come until the moment of decision. And there is no, there is no set of policy manuals that brings you to that moment. That, and then, so then you stand before God in that you know in that judgment god weighs you for your decision you you you're you're looking for wisdom whatever but the, it's in that moment that that moment of decision and i don't think like for us as a movement that we've even gotten to that point yet of like where do we stand are we taking up arms or are we being led to the arena 
and and for us what is the right movement for like what is it that will unfold the 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 true meaning of the kingdom of god what is the the right thing for the community because there was a tweet that i saw yesterday evening i was just scrolling through somebody's um page and, and came across as they said if this page or if, if the stories of scripture were complete except for the story of solomon um threatening to cut the baby in half right to to solve the dispute between the two mothers so you had the whole scriptures but that one story and one of your leaders today rose up and said we need to cut the baby in half how would you think about them and you're like that's it that's exactly you know that because we we often especially in the west we we want to avoid that 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 question of 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 the sort of the openness of of decision in that moment you know what i mean that there is a moment where chopping a baby in half is the right thing to do or at least threatening to anyways and you know, maybe you get to that point or you don't. But there is, but there is that that sense where we really want to avoid that type of reality entirely. But it is that type of reality that then breaks the frames of everything entirely. And, and this is really what wisdom does and why it is so powerful. And like getting back to this, the, the whole thing of, of universals, right? Because like for a long time, we we were taught in school, you know, you sort of you read a pericope. Right, and you try to boil it down to its main theme, and you 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 set that into a declarative statement, and you don't get allow yourself to be focused on minor themes. Where do you find the main theme of the text? And then once you have the main theme of the text, that can then now be brought forward into the modern context and applied to today's situation. And you're thinking, in hindsight, you're like, okay, this is pure modernism, right? Because now all truth is portable once it's abstracted. But I began thinking of like. Okay, if God wanted that, why didn't He just give us a series of statements like that um, that we could then apply universally everywhere, you know, aculturally or whatever? And you realize that no, that's exactly what He wanted. He wanted the stories because it's in the nature of these stories that, um, just in in the sense, of the reading of the stories that allows this kind of multiplicity of meaning. Um, because once you understand how meaning works and, and wisdom works, you realize that um, on the one hand, there is a true meaning of Scripture, but on the other hand, there is no true meaning of Scripture, if that makes sense. At least not in the modern sense. It's funny how relevant that um, the parable of the baby is, uh, the story of the baby is, for our time, even though it was in no sense written for our time and our very particular considerations. So for example, you could pull out of that story all kinds of scathing critiques of our modern political system. For example, if this was a democratically elected leader that attempted to impose that decision, it would immediately be contested by the democratic polity as insane. So the fact that a democracy would have the ability to cut that prudent and wise and sort of almost mystical judgment off before it ever manifested and its fruits were known, its good fruits were known, is already a condemnation of, of sort of democracy. Likewise, um, as a policy, the idea of cutting ba disputed babies in half and then seeing who protests and who doesn't is completely insane. But as 
uh, and that's that's with regards to a policy divorced from a person. But as a ruling coming from a person of authority, a person chosen by God, a leader who you trust in and of themselves, and not as someone that is merely negotiating policy with a set of other policy makers, uh, he can sort of take you along for that journey. You can trust that this thing that makes no sense to you at the moment of pronouncement is going to bear good fruit because you trust him, you trust his wisdom, you trust his authority, you trust his right to govern, and you allow him to take you on that journey to a positive result, which indeed results in that in that story. Um, but it's sort of like once you undermine authority and you divorce leadership from policy and you do all the things that we've done, you end up with this paralyzing um, and sort of confused, messy system where authority is inexistent, trust and leaders are inexistent, and, and so forth. Well, this I, is. Well, it, I, go ahead, Duncan. Well, it's just it's interesting you mention this because one of the my experiences working for this massive bureaucratic system is is that it it's almost so inscrutable because of all the various policies and sub policies and all the processes that are constantly changing it's almost like the postmodern hellscape is a bureaucratic system very much against all the sort of orwellian myth um that it's so inscrutable that chaos is the only thing that is possible such that you can't even work within it whereas there is a there is a kind of distillation of of simple wisdom in the presence of Solomon in that in that story, um, where where you can actually see wisdom manifest. But I also think this is because there is a genuine openness to otherness, which is modernity hates the other. It wants to colonize the other. The other must be obliterated. God, in fact, must be done away with, which is the which is what Nietzsche perceived, although he I, I think failed to see in some sense his his part in that uh, process the this idea that we cannot have anything that is outside of our realm of understanding and this is something that i think a, a genuinely rich political vision will will allow for is a is an encounter of otherness which is what postmodernity tries to do it tries to make room for that um but that the recognition here needs to be that the truly transcendent is going to be um, a principle, is not going to be uh, without values, but is in fact going to impart value and values to whatever is beneath it. So that's probably said in in too complicated language, but I but I think that the idea of of being open to the other is is part of um, our role in the world. Well, the, the the interesting thing that you say there, Duncan, that just occurred to me that um, you know one of the things that because modernity wants to deny the other is that it can't know itself. It yes. it becomes because that the sense of like Paul recours oneself as the other that modernity is incapable of knowing itself because you can't know yourself without the encounter with the other, and as a result the more power that it gains through system and through technique, the, the more lost to itself it becomes. So if you, if you take the, the point of, of Foucault and you're trying to break the system, the, the, the way that they break the system is in a uniquely Western way. 
So they're breaking the system through the application of power, right? And, and then, well, what allows you to harness power is technique. And so you then apply the, the, the philosophy of postmodernism in critical theory into the, the bureaucratic system and you turn the postmodern back into a modernist reality by trying to impose it through the use of power, right? So, so what happens is, is that um, postmodernity becomes, the, the, you know, the revolutionary power of postmodernity becomes subsumed and absorbed into the technical system in its quest for power, right? And that's, and that really, you know, and, and this is and this is the funny thing is is that if you if you pay attention to to Spengler's notions of the development of culture, the warrior spirit, um, like Spengler makes us a point of it that that the warrior doesn't like words, right? He he's a man of action. He's he's rooted in the soil. He's so there is a sense that that the warrior is rooted in this this notion of culture, this notion of decision, of of being active in the moment, and it is the priestly class that then provide you know in that tension that provides the words that helps frame the things, tells the stories, and so forth. And then outside of that, as you move from that early tension between the warrior and the priest. Um, as you move from culture into civilization, the merchants take over and they take the language of the priests and they, they, they turn it into a means of harnessing power for making money, right? So what we in the West have to realize is that, you know, not necessarily that we're all going to become, become warriors, but I think, you know, as you were saying earlier, that a lot of guys, you know, feel an attraction to this because what they're sensing in the warrior spirit is this power of decision? Well, not powers, but the, the ability to make a decision in the moment, to, to face the choice of whether to cut the baby in half or not, or the two mothers and how to resolve it, how to break the Gordian knot. Is there that sense of, of that? On one sense, you know, we think power is, is, is being able to harness things through techne, but real power is being in that moment and making a decision, but the decision might be to give up your life it may not necessarily be whereas i don't think modernity can really it doesn't really allow you to lead to that point because it always assumes that through techne you'll be able to save yourself through techne that you won't have to make that choice of whether to live or die that you can avoid the choice altogether and you know people look they go back to the warrior spirit because they're sensing something in that ancient warrior spirit that um that is not present in our society, but they don't know what they're grasping at because in some sense, they're not willing to face the realities of postmoderns and realize that that wisdom isn't so much about having a sword in your hand and killing people and bathing yourself in blood. Um, that the, the important thing is that you then stand in the moment and you are the one responsible for the decision, if that makes sense. And it's that responsibility for the decision that we want to avoid, that, that, the, that the system will take that responsibility of our hands and always give us the right answer. And what the scriptures tell you is that, no, in the moment, and they tell you again and again and again, that in the moment you will face that decision. And the only way to know the right answer is to be in right relationship with God. Perhaps one, one way to look at it is that 
the, sort of the modern frame insists on correctness. I think that's an idea that that's come up a few times. There is a correct way to do things, but the correct and the true are not necessarily coextensive. No. And I, and I think that's part of what we need to be is true. And that's what the, that's what the warrior spirit is about. It's the, I guess it's the archetypal sort of, um, collective of the warrior, the priest, the magician, and the lover. Something that, that just struck me about um, that, that scene with Solomon is that him demanding or say, suggesting, uh, demanding, commanding um, that the baby be cut in half, that was the compassionate thing to do. It was a terrible situation. That sounds. It's yeah. bizarre. It's a terrible situation because one of the, one of the mothers is grieving. And, and her actions stem from this grief, this failure to understand her own grief. But him uttering that is, is a con it, it helps both mothers confront their own situation. And that means he is calling them to be true to where they're at. Um, and, and I think that, that that's that's really wisdom is that he's not being uncompassionate he's not being cruel he's not being some sort of um i think the assumption that the warrior is this kind of heartless beast is is also a mistake he is he is probably inwardly weeping while he faces the situation because he un he understands their situation in a very personal way Yeah, and, and and it's that sense of also, you know, facing life and death of of you know, getting at the the real mysteries of existence itself. You know, the fight for life, um, protecting your family, being willing to die for something. You know, all of these things are wrapped into the warrior spirit. That you're in a place that the the technological mindset doesn't allow you. It it inframes you and cuts you off from this because. Um, one of the reasons that we embrace technique is to deny the personal and to deny personal variance, right? So, um, you know, especially not, not so much like women tend to be more towards the mean in terms of, you know, IQ studies, whatever. Men are more up and down, right? So with men, you have both, you know, the craven, the criminal and the idiotic, but you also have the brilliant and the genius and the, the you know, so those tail ends tend to be men, you know. So what technique does is it lowers the floor and says, if you follow the system, that we can produce these consistent results all the time. We can cut off all of this, this floor in society. And it's marvelously powered because it does work, right? But the problem is in cutting off the floor, you also cut off the highs. And as a result, long-term, we absent or we, 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 um, outsource decision-making to the system. So there's always an answer in the policy manual. So in part, and the other thing you do too, is it, it, is it takes away the variance and, and the, the malfeasance of, of people, right? So for example, the American system of government, you, you put in place a system of competing powers, right? Checks and balances. So that way you have powerful, ambitious people and the way to control them is by pitting them against each other, giving each of them a small bit of power, and then saying, knowing 
you know, sinful human nature that they will try to jealously guard that power. And in the process of jealously guarding their own power, they will defend that power against the other areas who are trying to take that power away from them. And in so doing, they maintain a balance within society. Now you think to yourself, well, okay, that's, but, but what they're trying to solve it through the, the system of checks and balances, this problem of human ambition, right? And, and the variance in quality people. So, um, and then you can create predictable out, out or, or results for a merchant society in your governance. So you can basically level off all of this and you can create those predictable outcomes in, in governance. What we're terrified of as a result in the modern system is we're terrified of people of authority. Because um, if you look in the scriptures, right, and again, then the storytelling, right, where does authority come from? But we say, well, it comes from the word of God. You have to sort of go deeper than that because authority comes from, you know, in a sense, believing that Moses met God in the burning bush or he met God on the mountain or Elijah um, met with God at the mouth of the cave in the voice of silence or that Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? And in those revelatory experiences, um, that's where your foundation of authority comes. There's that sense of thus says the Lord. And so what I've begun saying is, well, how do you, people say, well, you can't have your own preacher all the time saying thus says the Lord, right? And in a sense, but you don't really interpret scripture correctly unless I think, and here's where we get into sort of the archetypal thinking, unless you participate in the archetype of revelation and that participation is real, right? So you might, yeah, you might not be Moses going up the, the, the mountain to see, um, um, God's back as he walks in front of you. You may not be that level of, of, of the archetype, right? You might not be with, you know, Peter and John on the mountain as, as, as Jesus transfigures himself, right? You're not that level of revelation. But unless your pastor on a Sunday is getting up and is, is in some way participating in that archetype of revelation, he becomes a mere scribe and Pharisee, a, a lawyer, dissecting the law or dissecting the word through scientific method. And I think that's really where the, the West brings you and, and where modern hermeneutics, and this is what Gautamer was, was arguing against, is that no, scientific method cannot guarantee you the truth. And yet we train people to read the scripture scientifically without reference to this metaphysical, this archetypal, which Kant has sort of severed, like, because you can't prove it, you can't demonstrate it scientifically, it doesn't exist, right? And so you've been cut from that frame. And so, you know, embracing the postmodern says, it's like, wait a minute, I don't have to prove that the, the, the metaphysical, the archetypal is there. I just have to believe it and intuit it, and that's good enough for me. And then that allows you the doorway back into a person. So then your pastor, you get up and say, like, now is he speaking from the pulpit? Is he participating in that archetype? And what Gautamer says, well, you know, how do you know a true production of Shakespeare or not, right? It'll feel right. There'll be dissonance or there'll be harmony. And that's the best you can get. It'll be, you know, and it's like that, the sort of thing, it'll be good taste or not good taste. Is it fashionable or is it good? So there's all these, these analogies that Gautamer uses to walk you through the fact that, you know, when you find the truth, you'll know it. When you hear the voice of God on Sunday morning, you'll know it. When you see wisdom in a leader, you'll know it. And that's the best I can do. And in order to know it, you have to participate in the same reality that the leader is participating in. And that's in a sense, you get back to Johan, that's where you come back to sort of your universal 
um, that there is a reality that you're participating in, but I can't guarantee to anybody that you're participating in it, but yet it's very necessary for us to participate in it and know that we're participating in it. And this is that thing of, of the lawyer, the decision, um, you know, Solomon and the two mothers and the baby, right? Um, and so that's where we kind of, and this is where postmodernism then becomes very, very powerful once you begin to unpack the whole thing. And I've just been going on getting, getting excited here, but I'll, I'll maybe stop there for a second. <laughs> you, uh, you completed my Kraptos bingo card in that uh, by saying uh, going up the mountain. So I had a little. Oh, there you going, go. Going up the mountain, wisdom, tradition, um, and the, the um, you know, correct fool. Did you ever play a game in university where you had certain props? We used to do this where we had a, a bingo card and we would make bingo cards for every professor and they would be like their favorite sayings and we on the bingo card and everybody, there'd be one that they say all the time and that's your star. And then everybody could make up their sayings and you, the only proviso for playing is you had to have the courage to say bingo, like in class when you actually got a bingo. We did it a few times. It was, um, yeah. So, anyways, yeah, I, I don't want to lose the charged. Of, I don't want to lose the thread of everything you said. There was a lot in yeah, there, um, Duncan. I'm sure. I'm sure you have thought. So I, I won't. I won't go on for long. So let me just touch on one aspect of what you said, which I think is is interesting and indeed entertaining, which is to watch the technical system of today try and struggle with the question of accountability as it increases its reliance on technology. Um, and so, if you look at, for example, a lot of the regulation that uh, institutions like the European Union are placing on artificial intelligence, they have these principles they insist on, like transparency, explainability, and accountability. And that's kind of this interesting observation, right? Because if what you're building is an intelligent agent uh, that is capable of making decisions, consequential decisions, then why can't accountability sit with the system? Why can't it sit with this tool? But in some sense, the regulation acknowledges that there is something particular about the human mind and its relationship with accountability that means that an individual must ultimately be legally accountable for the decisions made by these technical systems. Now, there's this interesting question of why must that be the case? Uh, and it, it actually, I think, ties into the question of transcending postmodernity, and it's to do with the limitation of the systems themselves. There's a good book called The Myth of Artificial Intelligence by Eric Glassman. And in this, he observes uh, that there are three categories of thought and uh, machine learning uh, scientists, artificial intelligence researchers only acknowledge two of them. And that unacknowledged third is key to our humanity. And it's why this current paradigm of AI won't be successful in replacing human thinkers and indeed accountability uh, in general. And what he notices uh, is that there's a paradigm of thought you'll be very familiar with this called uh, deductive reasoning, which is starting with particular axioms and then deriving other axioms through logical deduction as you manipulate them. And there was a period of artificial intelligence called uh, symbolic artificial intelli intelligence. This was the sort of paradigm before the current one that thought that we can build up these increasingly complex webs of formal rules and we can in construct intelligent agents by just adding more and more rules, more and more symbols, more and more paradigms to that. That failed because the world cannot be reduced to a series of rules. Uh, it's far too complex, um, obviously. Then there is, of course, inductive reasoning, which is extracting patterns uh, that you believe represent some kind of generalized law uh, from repeated observations of the same system. And that is what the current 
paradigm machine learning, large language models, and so forth rely on is, is versions of this inductive reasoning. Larson says that there's actually a third kind of reasoning, which is unacknowledged by machine learning scientists, at least in the mainstream, that is actually central really to all the important thinking that we do as humans, and it ties into this question of wisdom. And that is abductive reasoning. That is the notion that from one context, from having seen something and seen how two things relate to each other, seen the outcome of a process, there is something about a human decision maker that can look at that and say, that's funny, I bet these principles apply to this completely other paradigm, right? So I, you know, I can play chess and I can think about how that might imply, apply to military strategy or, you know, the you know, there, there are all kinds of trivial examples of this, but the question of like, you know, if I walk out onto the street and I ask, why is the ground wet? It could be rain. It could be my neighbor's sprinkler. That might depend on the season. It might depend on what time of day it is. It might depend on if my neighbor is flouting the water restrictions. And I need to know all this like wildly contextual information and synthesize it somehow. There's no rules that allow me to do this. There's something about the human mind, the human aspect that synthesizes all this information and principles and social connections into this truth. Um, and it's only that really that can be held accountable. And you know, if if you if you apply this to to the, the paradigms we've been discussing today, you might say that modernity is over-indexing on deductive reasoning, attempting to form these universal laws that must be true. Postmodernity is over-indexing on inductive reasoning, which is making lots of observations about the world in these different contexts and noting that it's actually very difficult to tie them all together into one coherent framework. And so lots of different pockets of laws must apply if they apply at all. But metamodernity, post-postmodernity, whatever comes next, will acknowledge that actually our access to truth relies on this very human category of reasoning, which is taking from these diverse sources authority, wisdom, faith, the transcendent, experience, tradition, social connections, and pulling them together into our reasoning to form something that we are in fact quite certain of, that really does have meaning to us as truth, that allows us to manipulate the world in good and healthy ways, and is not systems-based, it's not measurement-based, we're not a machine, we're not reasoning in these very simplistic forms, and it's very difficult to reduce to laws. There's something inescapably human about that relationship between uh, consciousness, accountability, wisdom, observations, thinking, and our ability to, to navigate the world. I have a last thought just on that. That was so beautifully put, um, which is related to Gautama's appeal to tradition, which he argues is not something that we can reduce to axioms. It's not something that we can necessarily interpret in a totally explicit way. It is something deeply lived and embodied. And one of the chief things that modernity attacks and postmodernity then took on, it didn't so postmodernity corrected a lot of things that were wrong with modernity, but the one thing it failed miserably at was to to correct modernity's rejection of tradition. And and to most people, I think that's the that's the thing they feel is missing, which is essentially a a hidden context that can inform and form them in such a way that they can create uh, good things in the world and develop wisdom. And so, something that I would say to anyone, it's it's one of the reasons I converted to Catholicism was 
to to get stuck into a tradition to actually live it embody it this is actually what is incarnational uh, that this is the central truth of Christianity is that is that God becomes man. And in that there's no rivalry between God and man. There is a perfect harmony between the transcendent and the imminent. Largely the fact that the the dissident right is an online movement. The online right is another word that I've heard sort of bandied about. Um, it means that it essentially lives in a Gnostic realm. It is beyond, the imminent. And that's part of what I think is, is so lovely about the, the your appeal to abductive reasoning, which is spot on. I don't think metamodernity is the right word for it because metamodernity also has this, this refusal to decide. It also tends to, in some forms of it, certainly try and escape tradition. And part of what we can do is to embody the tradition that we come from in whatever way we can to to stand against, I guess, the, these forces of dehumanization, which is the 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 reason why I think so much of the dissident right is um, has tried to become vitalist, um, is because it misses the vitality of a lived tradition. But I think, obviously, it's something I've said in 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 other contexts. But I think that the only way to really recover vitality is in a deep tradition. Mm. The, um, I'm mindful that we're probably getting close in time. That what the, it's, it's interesting that the term that Del Noche uses for this is ontologism, right? And, and Del Noche wants to guard against, he says, the, the two post-Nietzschean political realities are, you know, past utopianism and future utopianism. So, you know, future utopianism, of course, is progressivism. It's all of like the liberalism, capitalism, all of these are your future utopians. If we if we play out these, you know, we'll arrive at the the blessed future, right? The past utopianism, you know, we sweep away the present order and we reach back into some blessed period in the past and try to reinstantiate it and things will be all made right again. Right. So that's that past. And he says that you you can't go backwards either because the the belief system and so forth that was in the past doesn't exist today. Like you cannot reinstantiate Greek society, right? You cannot instantiate Roman society or even Germanic society, like the Norse myths or whatever. So he says, you, you can't reinstate. So where do you look then? And, and what Del Noche says, you have to look to, to living tradition. And in the modernity, the only place that you really find it as, as embattled as it is, is within the Christian tradition. So there's there's two things. And, and this is the one thing that Del Noche argued is that, and the thing that modernity wishes to deny us is that there is real, and this was one of the things that changed my views, by the way, finally and decisively on the notion of um, sola scriptura, for example, is, is that, um, you because the, the 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 way that we tend to read scripture um in the modern era scientifically actually cuts us off from god right because we become framed in technical approaches that's that sort of Kierkegaardian and and we don't in this quest to immerse ourselves in the word of god we actually cut ourselves off from god if that sounds you know i could maybe tease that to somebody else but what del noche has argued is is that he says you you have to have that intuitive encounter 
with with being with God again that Kant cut us off from, right? They said, because you can't prove it, it must not be real. And Del Noche says that no, not only is it real, but there has to, and this is a thing I think that, that scares, especially Protestants, is that there has to be real content in that intuitive encounter. Now, it may not necessarily be rational content, and it may not necessarily be scientific content, but it is content nonetheless, right? And it, it is things that you know with certainty, right? So your relationship with God and all this, but there's a whole range of things that you can know without articulating. Um, for example, that, you know, relationship between husband and wife or friend to friend, right? You, you can know a friend, you see them eye to eye. And that's why even just here, the cameras is way better than just talking with, um, without them is because you get a measure of, um, I can, I can look you in the eye. And even though I'm not there in person, getting that feel of you, you know, the smell of you, whatever, you know, that, um, by looking you in the eye, I learn something of the essence of who you are, that thing that's uniquely yours that cannot be put into words. And again, it comes back to the thing, well, what do I have? Well, I don't know, but I know what it is. It's it's Duncan, it's Johan, and I see it, and you know, it's my wife. It's, you know, why do you love me? Right. And you know, that terrifying question. I just I know what it is, but I can't articulate it into words. But that doesn't mean because I can't articulate it into words, there isn't real content there. And modernity wants to deny us access to that content, but it is that content which enlivens our culture, enlivens our faith. And this is what Del Noche said, is the way to break through the, 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 the choice between fascism and, and Marxist communism, you know, past utopianism, future utopianism, is to reintegrate ourselves into our living tradition, ontologies, and once again encounter the living God in a, within the bounds of our living tradition, not sort of off-bury what, you know, I make up my own religion thing, but within the restrained bounds of our own tradition, we encounter the living God intuitively, and this has real content that then, shall you say, like, you know, we've talked about pre up to this point, you know, like the warrior spirit, the moment of decision, it fills those moments with content, you know, do I fight or do I go to the arena, right? But you can't fill that decision with content unless it's plugged into that real ontological reality. And that's what Del Noche was arguing is, is that's the way that you break through the, the, the modern post-Nietzschean political dilemma is to once again reintegrate. And then he says, once you're reintegrated into that reality, you have now the bounds for authority because that's Smith's miracle of law flows out of that moment that the lawmaker can pronounce law because he's participating in the archetype, shall we say, of the lawmaker, but he's participating in something that's ontologically real and not just sort of mythical, you know, where we all know it's not real, but we pretend it's real. No, for, for, for Del Noche, this is a real thing that you're actually participating in being, and thus you have real content for your decision that maybe wasn't known until the moment of decision, but is now known, right? And that's, I think, once you sort of strip away all of your postmodern and, 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 or all your modern and even, the, that it allows you once again to access these realities and begin to make yourself comfortable with the fact that our society needs men of authority who can pronounce law. And you have to say that out loud. Amen. Yeah. 
Well, gentlemen, I didn't mean to be having the last word or the last speech. If there's anything that either of you would like to add, and then we can we can maybe wind this up. And as um, it's been really fun, we do have to do this because I feel like we opened probably a dozen or more threads that we and rabbit holes that we didn't go down that we probably could. Because I've got notes on here and stuff like, okay, we're just gonna have to leave that. We're gonna have to leave that. We're gonna have to leave that. And um, <laughs> There's, there is always too much, but it's wonderful. It's wonderful to to. I mean, I think one of the main functions of this is to is to just kick our heads into a different gear, get us to think about a few important things. So yeah, and as great. we we've noted, oneself as another, right? That you can't really yeah. even know what you think. Both first of all, until you say it out loud, but then also until you encounter your thoughts in somebody else. Kraptos, I have to say, it's incredibly impressive you're doing this first thing in the morning. I certainly couldn't do it at whatever time it is for you. Well, I've been up since since um, 5.30. And so even if I have nothing else to do, I get up at 5.30 and my day is going. So um, there we go. So usually I breakfast showered and everything by 6.30, 6.45, and I'm off and running. So usually at this time, I'm helping the kids get to school, but today they were on their own and they were busy, you know, interrupting me in here and so forth. So that was good. Asking for meat pies for, can I take frozen meat pies in my lunch? Oh, you can't take frozen meat pies in your lunch. Just <laughs> make a sandwich, take, a, take an apple, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah. But um, yeah, so that's so that gets me up in the morning. And so you guys are in the middle of the afternoon. But here I am and a cup of coffee and a, a breakfast later. And I'm, I'm mostly coherent. So mostly. Thank you so much for having us and for organizing. Well, yeah, thank you for, for joining us. And, and it's it's nice, you know, even though we're cognizant of the idea that we live in a global community, that um, there it's nice that we can connect and Again, another Schmittian reality is that when politics breaks out along lines, that it will probably do so globally all at once, um, which you're beginning to see, right? And and this group that we have together, um, though it mostly North American, but um, there are a few of us that you know probably about a quarter span the globe, and and that's that's good too as well. So thank you, gentlemen, for for making time in the day to join me. Thank you so much. It's been superb. It has been. Likewise. Right.